Hello, good morning, everyone. Um, my name is uh, Scott Richardson, and uh, Steve asked if I would teach the service today. So um, uh, but before I jump in, I just wanted to let you folks see our family. Um, Amy, if you want to. Hi, everybody. It's, uh, it's great to be able to fellowship with everyone this way. I just want to say that I love you all and I miss you terribly and you're in my prayers and it's helped ease our transition to Texas by having so many of you visit and we just treasure every single moment we've spent with everyone who's visited and we love you so much and we'll continue to pray for you. And uh, here's our daughter, Anna. Hi. All right. And Joseph. Hello. All right. I know teenagers are not ones for a lot of words. So, all right. See you, folks. Bye. Um, so I used to be uh, the assistant or an assistant pastor there at Calvary Chapel in, in the city until uh, 2017 when our family moved to Texas. And uh, since then, we've been attending the Calvary Chapel uh, here at Fort Worth, where uh, up until the pandemic, um, I was teaching the fifth graders and Amy, the four to five-year-olds in Sunday school. Um, and uh, But since this time that we've been here, she and I have been able to really um, spend a lot of time building relationships with each other and, and you know, with our, our three teenagers. Um, we live in a home uh, here in the suburbs of the Dallas-Fort Worth area now, really a far cry from our downtown living situation in Mission Hill in Boston. Um, our oldest son, John, he's, he's an adult now. He moved out last year and he's uh, out making it on his own. Um, Joseph is, will be a, a senior in high school uh, this fall. Uh, he works at Taco Bell and still loves his trumpet. And um, he also played uh, the bass, bass guitar for the youth group worship. Um, and Anna will be a freshman in high school this fall. Um, she really enjoys competitive cheer and she also serves with the two to three year olds in Sunday school. Um, we still have our small dog, Buddy, um, although he's uh, like 12 years old. So uh, we had to put him in a kennel during a vacation recently and they put a sign over him that said, senior. <laughs> um, but we recently added a, a large dog uh, to be as black lab German shepherd mix uh, that we got from a local rescue place. So um, hopefully she won't be barking this morning. We prayed for that specifically. Um, and uh, really over the past three years, the Lord has really blessed us abundantly uh, just with a little more time for each other. I, I don't have as many responsibilities as in the past. So that's allowed us to kind of invest in each other. Um, and I've really been more and more thankful for this time. Um, you know, I know many in ministry having to balance uh, family and church and, and work. And, um, and that really ends up creating a lot of tension and a lot of, um, you know, marriage and ministry families. Um, so, and I'd often relied on Amy over the years to tell me whether or not I was spending enough time with her and the kids. Um, but uh, these past three years have really 
allowed us to spend a lot of time with each other. Um, and so, yeah, it's uh, definitely been definitely been good. So um, I guess with that as an introduction, we'll get into God's word. Uh, we'll be in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Um, actually, Jeff told me that you folks have been in Romans for a, a little while, which is great. And uh, so this may be a reminder on uh, some items you've covered. But uh, Romans 8.28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for just the privilege uh, to be able to teach your word and to be able to um, share with Calvary Chapel in the city this morning. I just pray, Father, you would bless the time. And uh, Lord, I pray that there'd be no technical glitches and pray, Father, that it would be clear and uh, be no distractions. I just pray you'd bless all those, um, Father, that we're virtually meeting with today in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Romans 8.28, it's probably one of those verses that uh, is most memorized, but it's one that's so full of hope. Uh, for both personal concerns and even ones around the world. Um, the, the context of Romans 8.28 is, of course, all of Romans chapter 8, which emphasizes really certain overarching themes, including hope, victory, and even purpose. And, um, and all three of these are available to Christians since we have the Holy Spirit living within us. Um, what's interesting is, you know, every religion has its own set of doctrines and practices that define it, establish what success is, what are the steps uh, to be successful. And Christianity has its own uh, doctrines and practices as well. But a key difference between Christianity and really any other religion is the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit, God himself, who accomplishes what we in our strength cannot do. He leads us, he guides us, he helps us pray and strengthens us in our weakness, offers us hope. And no other religion can offer that. Every other religion will require you to accomplish these things through an iron will or some other strength in you. Whereas God comes along and we see this in Romans 8, I will come in and live in you and give you the ability to do these things uh, that I've called you to do. And so, um, but Romans 8 also brings out that it will be a struggle and a battle to walk with God in this life uh, making us thankful that we have God's spirit to help us overcome um, and understanding that the greatest victory is yet to come uh, with just the new heaven and the new earth. Um, but it's always a great joy, um, whether in my life or what I see in other people's lives, God doing things that we could never do in ourselves because of the power of God's spirit that's within us. And so, uh, with that as our context, we'll go over each part of Romans 8.28 and uh, really explore each of these. And so uh, the first three words in Romans 8.28, and we know. Um, 
Now, I have to say, um, I often act or feel as if I don't know what follows those three words, um, that all things will work together for good, um, at least to the point that it really impacts me, uh, my thinking, um, my thoughts, even my emotions. Uh, you know, I've wanted to be governed by such verses as this, uh, because it is so foundational. Um, I know for myself, I'm often prone to self-pity and fear of impending doom, um, maybe even a desire to live in the past where things were simpler and I know what was going to come in the future, um, almost as a way of some emotional security. But uh, because I can find the present so overwhelming and, uh, and so this verse challenges me to think differently and to be so convinced of the truths that follow those three words that it can lift me out of that emotional turbulence and, and give me hope. And so what are we to know? The next three words, that all things work together for good, all things. And these two words in particular are like cold water to a thirsty soul, particularly those in trials and difficulties. It's not, you know, good things work together to make great things, as if all the bad things that go on were just, you know, bad luck or something that happens to others, maybe because they've got some hidden sin or they're backslidden or whatnot. You know, it's all things that happen to us, um, meaning God is uh, not only in the pleasant circumstances of things in this life, but very much involved in all of them. And that God can take any and all things and by his divine creativity, as well as his power and sovereignty, almost like some divine you know, alchemist turn hard things into gold and fulfill his promises, fulfill this promise. And any, and often God works in ways that they almost seem like random chance. How did this happen? And, and, and it can be such random chance that you could easily ascribe it to just, you know, a chance happening. And so I believe the Holy Spirit puts enough examples of fulfillment in the Bible that we can see that what appears to be random chance is the hand of God. Um, a great example, even though the context is God's judgment on God's creative way of fulfilling a promise, is um, what God said would happen to King Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 21. Um, in this chapter, Ahab, he wanted a vineyard that belonged because he was in the in his castle and um, right next to his his palace there was a, a man named Naboth who had a vineyard and suddenly Naboth, Naboth wanted that vineyard and he asked Naboth to sell and Naboth wouldn't sell and so uh, Ahab's wife Jezebel um, she conspired to have Naboth murdered and uh, so that her husband Ahab could just step in and take the vineyard. And that's what happened. Uh, she had Naboth killed and uh, Ahab went down to the vineyard and look around at all of the 
wonderful plants and whatnot that was now his. And um, well, lo and behold, um, Elijah the prophet met him in that same vineyard and had a word for him. And it said in 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 17 to 19, it says, so God told Ahab, in the place where dogs licked the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. And so God basically telling Ahab, hey, you're going to die um, just as you had Naboth killed and even had this, this prophecy about dogs licking up the blood. Um, so the question is, how would all that come about? It sounds pretty brutal. And uh, the fulfillment, however, was so random and natural, one might think that it was not of God. But it was three years later that that prophecy would be fulfilled, maybe long since forgotten by Ahab, maybe Ahab thinking God forgot or went on to other things. But three years later, Ahab decided that he wanted to try and take uh, Ramoth Gilead, uh, which was a city. It was part of the inheritance of Israel, uh, but they had lost it to the Syrians who possessed it. And so he said, let's go attack those uh, Syrians and take this uh, land back that really belongs to us. And so but that being said, Ahab was still maybe in the back of his mind thinking about Elijah's prophecy. So he actually disguised himself. He didn't dress up as a king, probably dressed up as a regular soldier and went into the battle. And First uh, Kings chapter 22, verse 34 tells us, now a certain man drew a bow at random. And so he just took a bow and shot it in the air towards, you know, probably a whole bunch of dust and whatnot flying around the chariots. And it says, and struck the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. So he said to the drivers of his chariot, turn around and take me out of the battle for I'm wounded. And so uh, this Syrian soldier shoots, hits him right between the joints of the armor, and basically delivers a mortal blow. And the next verse, uh, verse 35 says, the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians and died at evening. And the blood ran out from the wound onto the floor of the chariot. Now, finally, in Verse 38, it says, Then someone washed the chariot at a pool in Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood while the harlots bathed, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken. And so a random chance bow shot, blood pooling in the bottom of the chariot, some soldier washing it out, dogs nearby, fulfillment of God's promise. And so... With the Holy Spirit putting that in there, we need to remember that some fulfillment of God's promises in our lives will likely see um, this kind of creativity from God, this happening in such a way that you could scratch your head thinking, is this really of God? When in fact, he's right there. And so um, here, if God does this in this way here that we saw with Ahab, we can rest assured he has no limitations. He can fulfill Romans 8.28 in the ways that he alone can do. And so the next two words in Romans 8.28, um, it says, work together for good, um, that all things 
work together for good. And so work together, uh, uh, in Greek, it's a compound word meaning with and working, meaning there's almost like machinery that is taking all kinds of inputs, activities, and actions to produce some desired, some desired result. It's not like an immediate, okay, this bad thing happened, and then this immediate good. There's a process, there's machinery, there's things that are happening, which also speaks of time. Time needed for the fulfillment of that promise and that verse. You know, when we looked at the story of Ahab and Naboth, it took God three years from the time the prophecy was given before its fulfillment. And when we read the word of God, we can easily read in an assumption that God's promises are always immediately fulfilled, only to be disappointed when it appears that God's missed his promise, when in fact, God is at work. It's happening. We just need to give time for that fulfillment. Um, in fact, many of these, the promises of God, particularly as it applies to us becoming more Christ-like and whatnot, they can take significant amounts of time for that to be fulfilled. I, for myself, I had often wondered, why am I not seeing so much of the peace, love, and joy? I, I remember being a Christian for probably about a year, and I went home and I said to my mom, don't I seem so much more loving and such? And she looked at me, she said, well, you seem kind of the same to me, maybe not as much of that chip on your shoulder. And so I uh, was a little disappointed with that assessment of my Christian life, but uh, it led to questions. I, I thought, is there some sin that I'm not aware of that I'm committing? Uh, is there some part of me that's not consecrated? Um, am I not as devoted, committed, or urgent in my faith somehow? And so it led to a, a great deal of introspection and questions in my soul. Why am I not seeing that fulfillment? But then I read Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, that peace and love and joy are referred to as the fruit of the Spirit, not the gifts, not something immediate, but fruit. And fruit implies a seasons of time and cultivation necessary to eventually see that manifestation in my life. And that fruit was possible, but I needed to give time. And so, um, likewise, when the Israelites were about to take possession of their inheritance in uh, the book of Deuteronomy, God told them in chapter 7, verse 22, they would not take the land all at once, but instead grow into it bit by bit. And so it's through that continual cultivation of a spiritual life with God to have all that God's word promises. And that investment is really needed um, in whatever area that we want to see fruit. Um, I think of marriage and parenting the same way, uh, you know, with my wife and I, you know, we've been married, we'll be married 20 years in October, and our marriage has improved. We've certainly had our challenging times, um, you know, the, it's documented that 
some of the most dissatisfying times in a marriage is with raining, raining, uh, raising teenagers. And uh, boy, that's true. That's a real challenging time. Uh, but our marriage has improved as we've invested in it. We're going through a book now entitled The Second Half of Marriage, which explores topics unique to couples in their 50s. And, um, you know, uh, Mary uh, De Silva asked if I would go HD, which just shows all of my nooks and crannies in my 50s now. But um, it's been a great book for us to go through, just uh, sort of life after children. Uh, as we have one adult child, another will be an adult next August. And so at the same time, we've been uh, spending time, Anne and I are now watching, uh, we've kind of went on a hunt to find some good uh, programming. And we've been watching Pure Flicks and this channel called Up Faith and Family, which just has some, a lot of fun bingeable uh, shows on there. Um, but it's all required time. Uh, time to uh, get the most out of whatever we're investing in. And so same with God, allowing him to orchestrate those good things that will come as they work together uh, for good. Now, the next two words can probably be the most challenging of all when it says that all things work together for good, for good. I've wondered what it means for good, um, because I've wondered, good for who? Is it good for me? Is it just good for others, for both? Uh, you know, is my definition of good the same as God's definition of good? Um, you know, often things that are good for me, I don't like very much. Um, and so what does it mean for good? And so we'll look at these two words for good from four different questions. Uh, do God and I have the same definition of what is good? What does he think is good? Um, is something good when it's only good for others and not me personally? Um, and how do I know when something that's bad actually is a good thing? And how can good come out of those things that are so terribly, terribly bad? Um, and so the first question, do God and I have the same definition of what is good? You know, there are times that I thought perhaps God's idea of good is not my idea. Maybe it was such a higher definition of good that it was uh, just something that I just had to submit to and realize that uh, what I thought was good may be bad. <laughs> um, and that, um, you know, but I do want to be on the same page as God as to what's good. And for that answer, we can turn to two Old Testament prophets. Um, the first is Zechariah chapter eight, verses three to six. In Zechariah eight, three to six, it says, thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
If it is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, will it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, what a picture. We have the elderly still around. That alone is a good thing, given the pandemic. We have the streets filled with boys and girls playing, likely very safely. You know, I remember when we were living in Boston, we, uh, uh, someone came around the corner of the street, uh, probably going uh, about a good 40 miles an hour. How they managed to make a turn, I don't know. Well, I know how they know. They hit our car in the front and then hit the church van in the back. So they kind of hit two Christian cars at once. And um, and I was just thinking to myself, it was Sunday, uh, was it Sunday morning. It may have been, you know, when we normally would walk out, walk across the street to our car. And, um, and so... In the scene in Zechariah, you know, you just have children playing in the streets. And, um, and I love what this says. When it says God said, will it also be marvelous in my eyes? That verse has actually been translated a, a few different ways. But Young's literal translation, I think, gets at the heart of this verse when he translated it. Thus says Jehovah of hosts. Surely it is wonderful in the eyes of the remnant of this people in those days. Also in my eyes, it is wonderful. An affirmation of Jehovah of hosts. God is saying, do you like this scene where elderly are living to an old age because there's not something that will take them out early? Do you like the scene of children laughing and playing, of health, of you know, laughter, prosperity, maybe. God says, do you like that? He goes, I like it too, you know. And um, similarly, in Isaiah chapter 11, we have another scene of what God would describe as good. In Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 to 9, it says, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. This is speaking of what Israel would become. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Oh, what a picture. Animals that are natural enemies to each other, peacefully together in God's holy mountain. The vulnerable are unharmed, even when near that which would otherwise result in a fatal encounter. How much this time would bring peace to the souls of mothers? You know, um, I never knew how much a mother... Um, has anguish over what can happen in this world um, and everything that your child does, you know, and uh, goes to work or even goes to a friend's, you know, house or goes on a, you know, uh, you know, to some event that somehow, you know, they're going to potentially die somehow. And, uh, and I don't even say that you know, jokingly, because it's just a, a, an anguish of soul for mothers. I just think about this verse, how sweet for a mom to know that her young child can go play 
near a snake's hole today, and especially here in Texas, there just seems to be so many poisonous snakes. Um, and uh, you're like, okay, we need to make sure that the yard is clear and that kind of thing. But just to have that peace of soul that my child can go out and not have to worry about them being hurt. Um, and, uh, and how that just speaks to the events of our day, if the knowledge of the Lord was in our, our midst, in our, in our uh, communities and whatnot, uh, what a difference that would make. And yet these passages, they help us understand what God defines as good. You know, that peace, the health, life, laughter, you know, um, the knowledge of the Lord. Those things are wonderful, and I can rest assured that God is not defining good as just hardness alone, though sometimes hardness is a way to get to goodness on the other side. But he has a good plan. He has a good end in mind uh, with those things that he does. And so the second question about good is, is something good when it's only good for others and not me? Um you know, often the struggle here is that what is good for, you know, the nation or for the church or for others may be good for them, but not for me personally. You know, it was a great thing that there was a church in Philippi for Christians to attend. And it was a great and good for the jailer to become born again, along with his whole family. It was not so good, however, for Paul, who had to take a beating for that church to be formed and the jailer to be saved. So good for others, but maybe not so much for Paul. And there are times that we may suffer to bring about a blessing for others. You know, missionaries and those starting new works, particularly in difficult areas, they've had to trade some degree of ease and comfort and security in order to bring forth good for others. And it reminds us even of, of Moses in, chapter, in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 to 26, when it says, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. And so... There are times, uh, and it shouldn't be some strange thing, that there may be a difference between what's good for others versus what's good for me. But that's never the end of the story. First, there's another great promise we have from God in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, that says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. You sow good things, you will reap. It's a promise of the Lord. In Romans chapter 10, verses 11, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. We'll never believe God, give him time to operate, come back and say, I don't know if this was worth it. He'll never be a debtor to fulfill these promises and bless those who give up something in order for others to be blessed. But secondly, we have this, these two verses that follow Romans 8.28. If we're wondering, is good just good for others and not me? Well, if we just read the next two verses, 
in Romans chapter 8, in verses 29 and 30, it says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. These verses are not just some higher level kind of thing for some large group. The good that Paul is talking about in Romans 8.28 includes very individual, personal, and relevant good for you and I as he goes to bring about a Christ-like character in you and I. And not just having that, but being a distributor of that. As it says in John 7.38, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, be able to touch others. And so these passages help us understand that what God defines as good, maybe for a season, bless others and not ourselves, but there is a fulfillment in Christ's likeness for us personally. The third aspect of good, how do I know what seems like a bad thing is actually a good thing? You know, there are times that there's some heartbreaking setbacks in our Christian life, and not because we've done something wrong but maybe because you've done and you're obeying God and you're seeking to follow him. You know, a relationship that maybe you were hoping would go forward to something more um, fell apart. You know, a job opportunity fell through or worse, it went forward. It wasn't what you hoped or understood it to be. Or a ministry you've poured your life into doesn't bear the fruit you expected or maybe closed down altogether. How do you find good in those circumstances? Well, I think there are two principles for us to consider during those times. One, again, the need to give time for us to see a larger plan at work. And secondly, the need to understand God's priorities in our discipleship. The first principle of seeing a larger plan we find in the story of Joseph. He experienced hardship upon hardship for obeying God, sold as a slave by his own brothers, worked as a servant to an Egyptian, then lied about by the Egyptian's wife, put in prison, served there, interpreted a butler's dream, and then forgotten about for two more years, just not seeing any goodness coming. Yet later in life, once enough time had passed, Joseph being the second in command to Pharaoh, married two children, wealth unimaginable, and actually being in a place to save his whole family, including those who had heard him in the past, allowed Joseph to say in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to save many people alive. Not just good for Joseph, but to save the very people that were hurting him. And so given time, Joseph could see that what was bad was actually something good. The second principle of understanding what seems bad can actually be good. We see in the life of David and Saul, where God has a different set of discipleship priorities than we do. You know, you remember David was anointed king in the place of Saul, and Saul became very jealous of David and, and set out to kill him in many ways. Um, you know, he threw a javelin at him. He tried using the Philistines to kill him to satisfy a wedding gift. 
He tried to even kill him, uh, dragging him out of his own home. Um, and eventually when David ran off, Saul sent out his army to find and kill him and even leading the searches himself. And on David's part, there were two very detailed uh, accounts uh, captured for us where David could have returned the favor and killed Saul. First in a cave when Saul came in to use the bathroom. And secondly, when David snuck into Saul's camp when everyone was asleep. Both times, David forsook vengeance and instead showed mercy to Saul. And both times, Saul wept, you know, at the mercy shown to him by David, and even acknowledging that David would be king. But here's the, the kicker. Saul never changed or repented. He never actually followed through on his tears and stepped down from being king. It was only when the Philistines finally killed him that David could finally take over as king. And so here's the point. If David had defined success or defined good, that Saul had repented, then he would have been very disappointed thinking no good had come. Saul never changed. Yet by recording all of these detailed exchanges between David and Saul, it appears the Holy Spirit has a different conclusion. The good was David's handling of Saul. You see, when you have your foot on the throat of your enemy, and because of a godly principle, you show mercy, you've honored God, that is good. Whether or not that enemy ever repents or changes, God's priorities are always our discipleship over what we may see as accomplishment. It's not um, how much we will be able to get done that may ultimately glorify God. It's maybe how we respond to that setback, how we respond to that spouse, that child, that relationship, that success may not be that that other party change, but the good is in how we respond and that God is glorified and we find the Holy Spirit capturing those stories for us in the life of David. And so to find good in the setbacks of the Christian life, we may need to give God time. We need to give God time to work out a larger plan and maybe understand good is in how we're handling others versus what they do or, or don't do. Lastly, how can we see good come out of those things that are so terribly bad? You know, as I think upon how our own world is turning more angry, violent, and fearful with church shootings, even here in Texas, pandemic, domestic riots, you can find, we can find it so hard, especially when it seems that the trend is this is just going to get worse. Um, moreover, when we read of how some of the early Christians were treated in Hebrews 11.37, it says, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. Those were people that followed God by faith, and those terrible things were happening. And I can think, how can good come from that? You know, sometimes things can go so bad for us personally 
that there's little else we can do than just surrender to what comes next. It says of Christ in Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Sometimes things are so hard. There's nothing to say. There's no person that can save you. There's no you know, organization and whatnot. It's you, God, and seemingly Satan. And that's what it's all about. That's what seems to be happening. And yet, even in this, there was a path forward. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, it says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. When we're in that difficult spot, um, you know, and we're attacked, we want to make it flesh and blood, fight that other person, fight that other entity. Uh, we want to threaten, you know, you know, if you keep this up, uh, you know, this is what bad thing is going to happen to you. And, and I'm not saying there's not a place to bring in, um, you know, the right authorities into a situation. But there are times uh, where it just seems like, okay, the will of the Lord here is that I have my time in the cooker and I just have to bear this. And during those times of terrible badness, there's just a need to commit ourselves to him who judges righteously. God, this is about you and what you are going to do or what you're not going to do. But, you know, I'm in this as long as until you say it's over. And God will do the right thing and has the power to do so. Of course, in the case of Christ, we brought about our salvation. But as it pertains to our situation, you know, once all the data is in, all of the data, not just the aperture through which we look and the, and the visibility that we have, but knowing the character of God and his definition of good, how he values his word, including Romans 8, 28, and given time for things to work together. And once we have a greater understanding of the broader context that we can see with the eyes of the spirit, just as Elisha's servant had his eyes to all of the flaming chariots surrounding them, we will agree in, in the most highest court, we will agree that in the, even the most tragic and difficult circumstances, that things will and have worked together for good. And sometimes that's something we just have to take on faith. Now, the last part of Romans 8.28 is where we get to our part. We have these conditions that all things work together for those who love God and for those who are the called according to his purpose. For those who love God, how do I love God? Well, John chapter 14, verse 21 he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Seek to obey the Lord. Be in that place for that verse to be fulfilled. A question each of us has to answer between ourselves and God is this. In Romans 10, chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, do I believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead as he said he would? Have I made him the Lord over my life? If so, then I've fulfilled this first expectation. But the second expectation, 
Are we the called according to his purpose? You know, Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Kind of funny that busybody is in the same zone as murderer and evildoer. In verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. We do get hurt when we stray from God's plan for us as Christians. And backsliding is just a no-win situation. Um, but to see good come out from a situation, we need to continue in the will of the Lord, not only in becoming a Christian, but continuing in turning over the lordship of our lives to, to God. You know, since we've been here, I've been confronted with a temptation. Now that I'm no longer pastor, you know, and around the suburbs living a routine in some ways easier life than in the inner city, there's that temptation to be not as attentive to the core Christian disciplines. Do I really need a daily devotion? Do I need to be with the people of God more than one day a week? Do I really need to be serving or praying? Do I need to be building accountability relationships? Do I need to get counsel from the pastor or other church leaders with a key decision I need to make? You know, in other words, do I need to stay close to God now that we've settled and things are going well? Well, I think we all know the answer to that. We need to stay close to him. And I've had to ask myself as we've kind of started over here, um, what do I do next? What do we do next? And so I remember Pastor Serge from the Calvary and Port-au-Prince. He said, if you want to know God's will in your life, read God's word and serve in your local church. And so, and I also thought to myself, well, what would a brand new believer do? Or what would I counsel? What would I suggest a brand new believer do? Have a daily devotion, get involved with the life of your local church, spend time under teaching and under spiritual authority, be accountable, make sure those around you, if you were to ask your parents, your siblings, your coworkers, your roommates, does this person seem to be a Christian? If they say yes, okay, things are probably going well. And so that's the advice that, that we've been following. Just continue in those core disciplines and God will show us what's next. And so the last thing I want to cover is, you know, there may be some of you wondering, what good can you expect um, knowing that while you may be a Christian, uh, you've not really submitted yourself to the Lordship of Christ. Um, you know, you've kept hold of most of those reins of your life and maybe given God some decision making, but not all. And certainly not on the areas that are, you know, most valuable. I'll, I'll give God, you know, control over decisions that don't hurt me too much, but the foundational ones, <laughs> I think I'll hold on to those. Well, to those, I would say, I can understand your fear and the unknowns, and that twisting of soul that go along with saying, okay, God, you can have control. That is a frightening, hard, and huge decision to make. Um, it's almost like becoming born again, again, where, okay, I know I have Christ, but now to actually give him control where decisions for my life, I'm allowing God to make. And so, but my prayer for, for those 
are when you hear the shepherd's voice calling you that you would not be able to stay in the sheep pen with the others, but you'd have to go for love's sake. You would have to be all in. You want to know him. You want to find out if this is true or what it says about him and the Christian life, then give him control. And that my prayer is you wouldn't be able to stay where you are, but you would have to go. And so now a person may ask, and it's a good question. Okay, well, if I've held on to control for so long, what can I now expect where, you know, uh, you know, I've been in control and not God? Uh, what can I expect when I've not loved him or loved him then stopped or really not lived according to his purposes? To that person, I would say two things. First, God is the God of the resurrection. His greatest work is bringing forth life from death. When Jesus said to Martha in John eleven twenty three, 23, your brother will rise again. And Martha said in verse 24, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day, to which Jesus replied in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. For Martha, Jesus would fulfill his promises in the afterlife. Okay, whatever I messed up here, you'll make it all right in the end. But Jesus responded by raising Lazarus right then and there, not at the end, right now. And if our choices have resulted in, in living outside of God's plan or purposes, some kind of death of hopes or dreams or whatnot, Allow God to form in resurrection power the life that he intends and desires for you. He can do it. He can do life from death if you want to give him that control. And the second thing I would say to those concerned about the past um, where you're a Christian but really haven't given him control, you know, a little humility goes a long way to change an otherwise bleak future. A little humility. Yeah, acknowledge I, I've been a fool in the past. You know, I did what I thought was right or I was afraid. And, um, you know, but now I want something different. A little humility um, is like, you know, our superpower as Christians. Um just to humble yourself before the Lord and to acknowledge it and give him a chance to do something different. You know, I don't know why I've got these examples from Ahab, but you know, when Ahab actually had killed Naboth or, or whatever evil he was doing and he was going to be destroyed as a result, um, he actually uh, hung his head in shame, you know, as <laughs> as wicked and evil as he was, there was this smidgen of humility uh, over God's you know, pronounced judgment on his family. And God said, you know what? I recognize that humility. Therefore the judgment will come in a generation that follows, but I'm not gonna bring it on you. If God could do that with Ahab, how much more for us as his people, when we show humility, when we own our sin, when we own our failures and, and whatnot, you know, that's an opportunity for God to work in great power. And so, uh, you know, here in closing, I, you know, my prayer is that we would all be able to say, and we know, 
and that would have the entire or that impact on our soul, on our minds, on our hearts that we desire for it to have. And, um, and that we would not only know, but all of these things, that all things work together, not just the good ones, that working together takes time for God to work things out, you know, for good, you know, ours and others. And that for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, you have great hope. Continue that journey of picking up the cross and following, knowing that whenever that fear or the, you know, depression, um, the uh, hopelessness, and, and I'm right there with you with a lot of those feelings, a lot of those thoughts, you know, and having to take God's promise and say, this is a right thought. A lot of these other thoughts, they're not right thoughts. They're not God's thoughts. And I have to put the right one in and push the old one out and have it actually be such a belief that I'm like, this can actually give me hope and help lift me out of the situation. And my prayer is that for you is full as well. And so, you know, um, Thank you again for just a, an opportunity to give you a little glimpse into our life here and certainly uh, a deeper dive into a promise that has certainly been a real blessing to me um, and a source of hope. And I pray for you as well. Um, I get, I'll pray. And um, yeah, Lord, we just thank you for the body of Christ. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that we have the indwelling spirit of God, that's something that no one else on the planet can, can say they have. But I pray, Father, everyone on the planet would dearly desire. We pray, Father, that even in this time of difficulty, of pandemics, Lord, that the word of God could go forth, that there would be a hunger and thirst for the knowledge of God in our midst, in our towns, in our cities, in our country, Father, that could be the real source of lasting and spiritual change, Father. We pray, God, that there would be um, just an, an opportunity for your word to do that work in our soul that you desire it to be. Help us to know you, Father, and to love you better. We thank you, God, for your love for us in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all.